Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books in Eastern European Studies, and I'm your host, Jill Messino. Today, I'll be speaking with Francisca Axeller about her new book, Ghosts of War, Nazi Occupation and Its Aftermath in Soviet Belarus, which was published by Cornell University Press in 2022. And this book was also the recipient of the Ernst Frankel Prize. So just a little background on Dr. Axeller before we begin. She is Assistant Professor of History at the Free University in Berlin, and also a Research Fellow at the Center for History and Economics at Magdalen College, University of Cambridge. She received her PhD in History from Princeton University and has held postdoctoral fellowships at the European University Institute in Florence and at the International Center for the History and Sociology of World War II and its consequences at the Higher School of Economics in Moscow. So, Francisca, I found this to be a fascinating read, but also a very timely one, given the ongoing war in Ukraine. And because, of course, your narrative is focused on uh, the lives of ordinary individuals and how the war played out uh, on the local level. So my first question is related to that. How did you come to develop an interest in war from the perspective of everyday life? And uh, how did you come to develop an interest in Belarus? I originally started my research thinking that I would focus on the history of the German occupation of the Soviet Union. Perhaps I I should say that I grew up in Germany, where the history of the Second World War and of Nazi Germany continues to be very present in public discussions and school curricula. And in some sense, my interest was grounded in that. Back in high school, I began to travel extensively through East, Central and Eastern Europe. I studied for a semester in Poland and then spent time in Russia studying the language. After I entered graduate school in the US, my research interests soon broadened to the post-war years. I first traveled to Belarus in 2010 during a pre-dissertation archive trip. I had arrived in Minsk on a Sunday morning, having taken night train from Kiev, and this was, you know, like European uh, um, Sunday mornings. Nothing was open. Um, it was, I was began wandering around the city. I had you know, I was poorly prepared, I had no tourist guide, no knowledge of the place. And this was also in the era before mobile internet and the smartphone. So as I started wandering out the city, I eventually found myself in a very central, yet somehow strange part of the town. In that neighborhood, streets would sometimes come to a sudden end, clearly not fitting in with the post-war socialist layout of the city. Some houses looked abandoned or burned out, and yet this was in the very center of the capital city. At night, then, I finally found an internet cafe where I could do some research. Browsing the internet, I realized that the neighborhood that I had walked through was called Nyamiga. The Germans had turned this old, historic part of Minsk into the longest operating ghetto in occupied Soviet territory. That experience left quite a strong impact on me and made me begin to wonder about the post-war years. Of course, in some way, you could say that in most Eastern and East Central European cities, the Second World War is to this day visible in the urban landscape. But somehow, the experience of Minsk left a stronger impression on me than those of other places. 
if the scars of the war are still so very visible today in the urban landscape of Minsk, then how must that have been like directly after the war? I wanted to understand how after such a tremendous, almost unconceivable amount of death and destruction that the Germans brought over the Soviet Western regions, and in particular over Belarus, where an estimated 19 to 22 percent of the population was killed or died um, as a direct result of the war. How, after this tremendous amount of death and destruction, was it possible to reconstruct one's lives and social communities? In a very basic sense, the main questions that motivated me were, what choices did individuals make under the most extreme moral circumstances, so Nazi wartime occupation? And how did these choices, or what I call the ghosts of war, haunt state and society, local communities and individuals alike after the war? We often assume that in societies that experienced war, occupation or violent conflict, the act of seeking justice and accountability contributes to the development of free public spheres and democratic societies, a process that we also know as transitional justice. I wanted to find out though how this process of quote-unquote confronting the past played out within a dictatorship like the Soviet Union. So in that sense, I think you can say that my book conceives of Soviet Belarus as both a historical place and as a lens onto larger questions of universal humanity. I'd like to actually move on to your sources. So your sources are incredibly rich and they include NKVD documents and, and a host of other official documents, but also oral histories. And I'm wondering what some of the challenges were in accessing these materials. So I'm thinking here in particular of the official documents. Um, and then maybe you can talk a little bit about your uh, qualitative sources. Yeah, so for the book, I conducted research mainly in Belarus and in Russia and in, in archives there, but also in Poland, in Israel and Germany, Ukraine and in the US. The issues that are raised in the book are to this day very sensitive ones in Belarus and, and in Russia as well, very politically and emotionally charged. So one of my main challenges in the Belarusian Russian archives was that a lot of archive documents on the war and on the post-war remain classified. So they are not accessible to researchers or they were only reclassified in the last decades because they're considered too sensitive to be made available for research. This pertains to material that is located in the fund of the Communist Party, but even more so to material from the state security organs, the NKVD and NKGB, subsequently then named the MBD and MGB, or more commonly known under the later name KGB. Both in Belarus and in Russia, the KGB archives were and continue to remain closed to researchers. Luckily, I was able to find some material from the state security services um, that were operating in Belarus in the fund of the Communist Party of Belarus, because the state security services regularly send summaries of their activities to the head of the Communist Party of the Republic. Other challenges that I encountered have to do with the question of who created or left written material that we as historians today can analyze. So apart from Soviet and German state documents, the book also draws on a range of autobiographical sources, such as memoirs, diaries, interviews, Jewish memorial books, and complaint letters that individuals sent to the Soviet authorities. While members of all social strata wrote complaint letters to the state, urban residents overall left more detailed written traces than rural residents, and men more than women. 
memoirs by Holocaust survivors, in particular those from Western Belarus, who left the Soviet Union immediately after the war and later settled in the United um, States or Israel, are also more numerous than memoirs by other population groups. To try to compensate, compensate for this, um, the sort of imbalance in, in the sources, I drew as much as possible on complaint letters, and I also conducted oral history interviews with survivors of the war. I was particularly looking for the voices of those that I had not yet found represented or had found underrepresented in other sources. I would really like to say that these interviews were incredibly memorable experiences. I was usually able to reach out to potential interview partners through friends or acquaintances. If, for example, someone asked me if they should ask their grandmother if she'd be willing to talk to me. And I'm very, very grateful to my interview partners for sharing their difficult traumatic experiences of the war and post-war years with me. Um, so I had a follow-up question about the oral histories, and you mentioned this throughout the book, how when um, individuals are talking about inhumane acts or immoral acts that happened, they're usually talking about other people uh, perpetrating them, right? They're not identifying themselves as perpetrators. And obviously there's a host of deflections and omissions going on. So I'm wondering how, you know, as a historian, uh, you deal with this in your book. Yeah, I think generally speaking, and that's a very good and very complex question, I think. Generally speaking, that is a very common human behavior, um, silences and denial, to not acknowledge one's own wrongdoings, immoral or inhumane acts. It is difficult to admit that one did not help, um, did not say something. In extreme cases, this might be related to fear of legal consequences, but I think more generally really for moral reasons, to, to admit shame is difficult. And, and that's nothing specific to this war, but really generalizable. What this meant for the book, though, for the analysis was that, um, I said, I, I drew on a wide range of different sources to be able to incorporate as many different individual perspectives as possible. These sources were also produced at different moments in time, some immediately after an event and then others years, even decades later. We know, of course, from cognitive psychology and neuroscience studies that Every act of remembering entails the reconfiguration of what is being remembered, which is why some might caution against using temporally removed sources such as memoirs and strongly favor more immediate ones. I don't entirely share these reservations, though. At the time of its creation, interpretations of events are always and unavoidably so already being written into a source while authors of personal or autobiographical sources necessarily position themselves in relation to the larger political and social force fields surrounding them, so do the authors of state documents. For example, reports written by local officials or state security officers to Minsk or Moscow. I think that at their core, the analytical challenge remains the same for all sources. To reconstruct how humans experienced and interpreted an event to understand who speaks, from what position, and in a relation to whom and what, and to identify the limits of what could have been said and what was left unsaid. And this brings me back to your question. I was particularly interested not just in what people said or remembered, but also what could not be said or what was not said. So this is a book about different understandings of what constituted guilt, complicity, and justice, about truth that could only be spoken in private, but it's also a book about the many absences, silences, and conflicts that were never resolved. And bringing these to light was part of what I've tried to show. And you do so very powerfully. I mean, I think it's so important to 
illuminate those silences, uh, those gray areas, right? And try to make sense of a past that is just so fraught, so contested, and so painful that often people can't put words to it, right? And so you have Mm -hmm. to kind of fill in the blanks in a way. And on that note about the individuals you interviewed, and also that you feature in the book, I thought you could just discuss the protagonists of your story. So you tell much of the story of wartime in post-war Belarus through eight individuals. And so maybe you could just briefly describe who these individuals were. Yeah, as as I was thinking about the narrative structure of the book, I decided to focus on these eight individuals who then, alongside others, appear repeatedly throughout the book. So I start the, the first chapter with them, and I then, again, they, they come up at different moments in time throughout the book, and then I end the afterword with the trajectory of their post-war lives. Um, these eight individuals were, by name, Olga Bembeldiadok, Vladimir Hartanovich, Hasya bornstein Bielitska, Liedman Mohr, Sofia Brzozowska, Vasil Bukow, Lev Avsitscher and Zinaida Zuvorova. These eight men and women were entirely strangers to one another. Their personal lives did not intersect, at least not in any way that they will have been aware of. They um, also spoke and wrote in different languages, Belarusian, Polish, Yiddish, and Russian, and they held different religions, Russian Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, and Judaism. They also came from very different family backgrounds and they held different political beliefs. Olga Bembeldiedrog was a Russian-speaking artist who lived in Minsk. Hasya bonstein belitska was a um, socialist Zionist from Grodna. Vladimir Khachanovich was a Belarusian nationalist and communist sympathizer from a small village near Novogrudok. Zinaida Zuvorova was a Komsomol activist from a religious Jewish family from Orsha. Sofia Brzozowska's family was part of the landed Polish gentry in the Novogrudok region. Dietmar Moore came from a Yiddish-speaking family from Polizia, and Vasil Buko from a Belarusian-speaking peasant family. And then finally, Lev Ovsitschert came from a Jewish family from Vitebskoplas. And I'm just providing a rough sketch here um, to, in some ways, illustrate how different these individuals were on fir- at first glance, but also to show that that all as you know as different as they were what they had in common was that they called the same place their home a once multilingual multi-religious east european borderland in which belarusian yiddish polish russian were spoken side by side so the purpose of introducing them in the book was also to show through their lives the pre-war diversity of the region and its inhabitants a diversity that was then largely destroyed by the german occupation So I'd like to move on to the chapters of the book now. And uh, your first chapter is entitled Contested Space, an East European Borderland Before 1941. And I was hoping you could sketch out uh, the nature of this contested space for our listeners. So who lived there and how did the First World War, the Bolshevik Revolution, and then the subsequent Civil War and the Great Terror reshape this region and the demographic character of it? I found that there are two particular challenges in in writing this book. The first one, obviously, was to be able to account for the complexity of people's wartime choices under Nazi rule, and then the ways in which these changed over time. The second challenge that I encountered was to account for people's pre-war experiences with Soviet rule, and how that then in turn affected the choices that they made under German wartime rule. In other words, in order to fully understand individual choices under Nazi rule, we need to know what happened prior to 1941. 
In the first chapter, which covers roughly the time period from around the turn of the century to 1941, I've tried to show how larger political shifts and ruptures, in particular the different ways in which Soviet power came to Eastern and Western Belarus, transformed personal lives and inter-ethnic relations before 1941. These first four decades of the 20th century were an extremely tumultuous time period in the history of the East European borderlands. Contested spaces where imperial and national rivalries met, constructs of the political imaginary, objects of competing civilizing missions. And also a place where different political actors, locals and non-locals, could test out their national and social engineering projects. Over the course of the century, the territory of Belarus today formed part of Kievan Rus, the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and the Russian Empire. Let me just sort of briefly sketch out the history um, of, of subsequently of these lands. During the First World War and then the wars that subsequently followed, these lands were repeatedly turned into battlefields with armies moving back and forth across the region. The 1921 Polish-Soviet Peace Treaty, the Treaty of Riga, finally then brought peace, but it also redrew boundaries across Eastern Europe. The western half of the region, with towns like Grodno, Brest, Baranovici, became part of interwar Poland, or the Second Republic of Poland, while then the eastern half of the region, with towns like Minsk and subsequently Vitebsk, Magaljov, Gomel, became part of Soviet Belarus. In September 1939, after the Hitler-Stalin Pact, the Red Army then invades Eastern Europe and, and annexes the region to the Soviet Union. So which is when northeastern Poland became western Belarus, and what until then had been Soviet Belarus alone, so to say, became the eastern part of the expanded republic. And then just two years later, on June 22, 1941, Berlin then breaks the pact with Moscow, attacks the Soviet Union, and within weeks brings all of Belarus and uh, most of the other Soviet Western regions under its control. I found that two pre-war developments were of particular significance for the war years. For one, to Eastern Belarus, Sovietization, which included the violent collectivization of agriculture, had come as a revolution from within, meaning there was significant local agency. To Western Belarus, it had come as an express Sovietization from abroad, in the form of Red Army soldiers and cadres from the East. In both cases, Soviet rule came with a significant amount of state violence, with people killed or deported, even more so actually in Eastern Belarus than in Western Belarus. In terms of how that changed the demographics of the place, victims of Soviet state violence in the Eastern part of the Republic were primarily peasants, ethnic Poles or Catholics or anyone else um, deemed Polish by the authorities, and then to a smaller extent, the Yiddish and Belarusian speaking intelligentsia. The victims of Soviet state violence in Western Belarus were primarily those deemed part of the interwar Polish elite, so officials, landowners, the clergy. Um, so again, Soviet state practices already changed the demographic character of the region, although then the major transformation happens with the Germans, with the murder of the Jewish communities. But what this like, very brief sketch of interwar developments also shows that, simply put, there are quite a few people in Western and Eastern Belarus who had little reason to feel loyal to the Soviet Union by the time the Germans attack in 1941. And then a second pre-war development that was of significance for the war years and the question of what choices people make under Nazi rule, that although there was a tremendous amount of state violence in interwar Belarus, in the cities 
of what of Eastern Belarus or what in 1939 becomes Eastern Belarus, levels of inter-ethnic integration were by the 1930s higher than in northeastern Poland, so the part that becomes Western Belarus in 1939. The reasons for that are manifold, and they have to do with Soviet state-sponsored campaigns against anti-Semitism, um, social mobility that was offered to many people living in the Soviet Union uh, as well, and as a result of that, and these two decades of Sovietization, intercommunal relations become among certain urban groups in eastern Belarus, so particularly among younger people, those who no, no longer practice a religion, or people who closely identified with the Soviet project, were less defined by traditional social and religious markers of identity than in western Belarus. That meant that during the war, higher levels of inter-ethnic integration in eastern Belarus increased the chances that Jews in the urban centers of eastern Belarus would be able to depend on the help of non-Jewish friends or colleagues, especially if they were fellow Komsomol or Communist Party members. So we have the same kind of behavioral spectrum that the non-Jewish civilian population in eastern Belarus displays towards the Jewish population, as in western Belarus. So there, there we don't, in, in the spectrum of behavior, we don't see a difference. But where we can see a difference is in this particular makeup um, or the structure of these support networks, which um, reflect these higher pre-war levels of inter-ethnic in eastern Belarus um, versus in western Belarus slash northeastern Poland. Yeah, and this actually gets me to my next question about chapter two, and the subtitle of that chapter is Wartime Choices. And in this part of the book, you examine how the Nazi invasion and occupation of Belarus affected ordinary behavior. And so my question is, how does framing this period through the lens of choice facilitate a more nuanced and complex portrait of human behavior? And perhaps you can also elaborate on some of the choiceless choices people were faced with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, let me perhaps start by stressing again that Germany's attack on the Soviet Union marked the beginning of the single most destructive military campaign in history. The mass murder of the Jewish population, alongside the enslavement of the Slavic population, the economic exploitation of the occupied territories, and the destruction of communism as a political system laid the core of Nazi ideology. Like in the other Soviet regions that were under German occupation, almost the entire Jewish population of Belarus, an estimated 500,000 to 671,000 people, was murdered by the Germans. But Belarus was not only a main site of the Holocaust, it was also a republic that had vast forests and extensive marshes and offered naturally conducive opportunities for partisan warfare, which is also why it soon became the center of Soviet partisan warfare against the Germans. The Germans sort of meant both preemptively and as a punitive measure, the German army then responded with great brutality to any perceived partisan activity, which is also the reason why the civilian toll among the rural population was particularly high in Belarus. As part of so-called anti-partisan campaigns, the German raised approximately 9,200 villages to the ground, more than elsewhere in Nazi-occupied Europe, and killed up to 345,000 civilians. Some of them were Jews, but the overwhelming majority non-Jewish rural residents. The German occupation regime was a regime of death and destruction, but it was also a regime that depended on the limited involvement of some. In the occupied territories, the German authorities pursued different strategies to different population groups. 
While the Jewish population were singled out for destruction, the Slavic population was treated with a mix of brutality and cooptation. What that meant then in practice, so to say, was that in both regions under military and civilian rule, the German administration depended heavily on the employment of Soviet citizens. So in each district, Soviet citizens were appointed as town or district mayors and as local policemen. And the Germans then also kept the organizational structure of the Soviet administration's lower levels intact, which meant that many who had worked, um, let's say, as an office clerk in a Soviet city administration then continued to work in the same positions under the Germans. All of this meant that for civilians in occupied territory, it was impossible not to come in contact with the occupation regime. Some people join willingly on their own initiative. Others do so much more reluctantly, even unwillingly, um, and then become complicit or entangled in Nazi crimes. And then we have the case of coerced engagement. So when someone is coerced into German service, forced to become a policeman, but then nevertheless commits atrocities. The contact and involvement of Germans also occurred in a multitude of different forms. So there's the question of motivation and then the conditions under which one joins, so to say, or becomes comes in contact with them. But um, some sort of some form of contact also carries much graver consequences than others. Let's say a, a town mayor or a policeman who held power over life and death was both physically and morally in a very different position from someone who worked as a journalist for a German-sponsored newspaper. Some individuals, in particular, again, town mayors and policemen, were in direct contact with their German superiors, but in many other cases, contact was much more mediated and indirect, as was the case with teachers and factory managers. I find it very difficult and analytically too imprecise to put all of this under the term collaboration. That doesn't mean that I don't use that term at all or that I would shy away from it. Um, I, I follow in sort of in my understanding of how local involvement with the occupiers came about, I follow Jan Gross in his description of it as an um, quote-unquote occupier-driven phenomenon. That means that people's engagement with the Germans, um, its logic, appeal, self-justification and social base emerge in each country at the intersection between the occupier's intent on the one hand and then the occupied's perception about the range of options that they had at their disposal on the other hand. So what that means practically for the book is that my primary goal was to reconstruct the intense pressures and constraints, constraints within which individuals had to act and to identify the many reasons why they came to be associated with the German or the Soviet side, or you could say both, or trapped in between. I... I, should, I'm, I was less interested in determining whether a particular kind of behavior could be called collaboration, which is, of course, contingent on our definition of the term, but I was more interested in tracing the reasons and motivations behind people's actions and then how these, in turn, were perceived and assessed by others after the war. Um, now, you ask about choiceless choices and what precisely that, that means. When the German army invaded the Soviet Union, the decisions that people in Eastern and Western Belarus made were initially often influenced by their prior experience with Soviet rule, or else their relationship to the Bolsheviks. That means, for example, that party members or individuals who held important positions within the Soviet party state were more likely to flee East, while many who had previously suffered under the Soviets were among those who joined the German organized police forces. 
Once partisan warfare then picks up in mid-1942, and civilians find themselves confronted with demands from both sides, people's wartime choices came to be much more determined by situational factors. This included the will to survive, coercion, German violence, patriotism, which was not identical with the belief in communism, or it could also be simply determined by the proximity of one's village to either a German garrison or a Soviet partisan zone. In other words, People's decisions and their consequences varied over time, and complicity and entanglement were questions of degree. To add sort of another layer of complexity to add to that, since the partisans were by 1943 mostly people from Belarus, and since the lower organs of the German occupation regime remained overwhelmingly staffed with people from Belarus, that means that locals essentially found themselves fighting against other locals. In parts of Western Belarus, this situation was then exacerbated by the presence of the Polish Amir Krajowa, and in Southern Belarus, by the presence of Ukrainian nationalist formations. While members of these groups at times cooperated with the Germans, and some Polish units initially also with the Soviet partisans, in the end, the war behind the front erupted into a multidimensional conflict in which the Soviet partisans, the different nationalist partisans, and the Germans and the local representatives all fought each other's and civilians suffered amid the violence. To be able to capture what it must have been like to live under these intense pressures, I've adapted a term, choiceless choices, that was originally coined by Lawrence L. Langer. So when I write that many choices in occupied territory were choiceless choices, I mean by that that when people were confronted with decisions, all options entailed a destructive effect on their personal lives, families, and local communities. So, for example, when a village had had to decide whether to hand over villages as forced laborers to the German authorities and then fear reprisals from the partisans or refuse to do so, so refuse to hand them over to the Germans and then fear German collective punishment. Or when you were faced with the question of whether to give others away in the hope that this could save your family. Yeah, and on that, I was wondering if you could expand on popular participation in the Nazi occupation and the Holocaust. So I'm thinking specifically the degree to which ordinary people were enmeshed in the Holocaust and the moral dilemmas and complexities associated with this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So and obviously saying that many choices in the Nazi occupation were choices, choices does not mean that everybody had the same choices to begin with. I mean, all civilians found the space within which they could act circumscribed by the Germans, but that space was much smaller, almost non-existent for Jews compared to non-Jews. And within the constraints of the occupation, non-Jews had a range of options at their disposal. Some of these were far-reaching, such as volunteering to work in the German overseeing police forces or giving shelter to Jews, on the other hand, Red Army soldiers and partisans, and risking one's life in the process. Other choices seemed sort of smaller, perhaps almost insignificant um, at the moment to these individuals who were making them, such as taking furniture from a murdered Jewish neighbor's apartment or explicitly refraining from doing so. Those who were hiding, others obviously tried to keep their actions secret, but many people made choices that were publicly visible and known around the neighborhood or village. I think your, your question also inevitably raises the issue of comparison. And so there's the comparison between Western and Eastern Belarus, the part that was Soviet for almost two decades before the war, and the part 
that um, belonged to interwar Poland until 1939. But there's also the issue of comparison between Belarus on the one hand and then the other Soviet Western regions that were under German occupation, so Ukraine, particularly in the Baltics. In Belarus today, but also in parts of the historiography outside of Belarus, it is quite common to argue that Soviet Belarus was different from the other Western regions of the Soviet Union that were under German rule during the war. Um, so long the, the argument kind of generally put goes that anti-Semitism was not widespread in Belarus, although Belarus here is always implicitly understood as the republic within its post-1945 borders. So without the Bialystok region, which from 39 to 41 officially constituted the westernmost part of the republic, this was the place where pogroms, um, or the, the place of pogroms, Jadwapna and Enverons, in early June, July 1941, but which was returned to Poland after um, in 1945. So again, so this argument about Belarusian exceptionalism refers to the republic um, in its post-1945 borders. I find that these claims to, to Belarus exceptionalism during the war are too general to be of analytical value. There were differences and important differences, but there are also similarities, and we always have to clearly define what it is that we are comparing. What we can see is that once the Germans began to establish their occupation regime, they could depend on both Western and Eastern Belarus, just like in the other Western republics of the Soviet Union, on the participation of a small group of people who, again, primarily in their capacity as policemen or town mayors, actively took part in the, in the Holocaust. There's also moral entanglement in many smaller ways. So there are members of housing departments that put up Jewish houses for sale after the owners were murdered. That has to do with the structural involvement of the lower levels of the Soviet um, administration in the German occupation regime. But there are also important regional differences between wartime Belarus and then the other Western republics of the Soviet Union. And these mostly pertain to the existence or the absence of radical nationalist groups, um, which were less prominent and much smaller in Western Belarus, again, in its post-1945 borders, than um, in Lithuania and in Western Ukraine. Related to that is another notable difference which we see between these republics, and that relates to the summer of 1941, when a wave of local anti-Jewish violence sweeps through these um, the Soviet Western regions that Moscow had only annexed in 1939 and 1940. Depending on the location, we can see that these programs differed in terms of intensity, brutality, and scope. Anti-Jewish local violence, which was usually instigated by the Germans, um, sometimes also carried out with significant German presence, sometimes not, was highest in Western Ukraine, in Eastern Galicia and Volhynia then in the Bialystok region, and in the Romanian-administered regions of northern Bukovina and Bessarabia. We also see mass killings of Jews with local participation take place in Lithuania. In Latvia and in Western Belarus, again, excluding the Bialystok region, the level of local violence towards Jews was much lower. And then in Estonia, it hardly seems to have taken place, probably because the Republic's Jewish community, which was numerically much smaller compared to Ukraine, Belarus, or Poland, had mostly managed to flee before the arrival of the Wehrmacht. And then in the old, uh, old Soviet territories that came under German occupation, so eastern Belarus, eastern Ukraine, and parts of Russia, these local pogroms against Jews during the summer of 1941 appear to have been almost non-existent. Mm, the, the question is, why do we have that regional variation in violence? 
um, it has to do in large parts again with the strength of the political right or the presence of radical nationalist units in a given re region who drive local dynamics of violence, which is usually instigated by the Germans. And perhaps that's also something that we can generalize, uh, take it out of the specific sort of Soviet East European context, which studies on war and society have shown how very often if violence is sort of instigated from above, let's say by a foreign occupation, it, um, its sort of regional variation often very much depends on whether there are, um, it only has to be, you know, a few people, but small units of people who are, who are willing to become or to kill or become very violent for um, their own sort of political reasons and who then drive these, these um, local dynamics of violence from below. And certainly we know that people engaged in violent behavior, not necessarily because they were anti-Semitic, but they had scores to settle, you know, they had mm -hmm. certain resentments. And on the discussion of Nazi violence in particular, I was wondering if we could look at the flip side now. So resistance to that violence and the occupation, and in particular, the role of the, the partisans and how the local populations felt about the partisans, how they engaged with them, and also then what it was like to be a woman in, in the partisan movement. Mm -hmm. the, the Soviet partisan movement in Belarus developed in several stages. So we see that the first members of the early partisan groups in the summer of 1941 were either state security officers who either get trapped behind the front lines or deliberately make the choice to go to the forest and stay behind, or um, they are Red Army soldiers who, got, who were encircled by uh, German troops and then flee to the forests, um, which has to do with the quick advance of the German troops in, in the summer of 1941. During these first months of 1941, these partisans were primarily concerned with their own survival. So they're scattered throughout the forest. They usually had no connection to other units or the Soviet rear. And then by the winter of 1941, with the exception of really a few units, that hold out in heavily forested areas, this early partisan movement then effectively ceases to exist. But then from the spring of 1942 on, the number of partisans again begins to increase. In Belarus, the growth of the movement was initially focused on the old Soviet territories, particularly in Minsk and Vitebsk Oblasts, but a few units also emerged in the western regions, most notably around Novogrudok, where um, the, this is the location of the dense Naliboki forest. And this is then also the location where the Jewish Bielski partisans are active. And um, as well as in Polizia, which is the large wetland region bordering Ukraine. This sort of mirrors development elsewhere that partisan warfare um, develops primarily in regions that have extensive forests so that, that can provide the shelter that is necessary for partisans to be able to hide um, from, from the Germans in this case. Other factors, though, that contributed to the growth of the partisan movement had to do with frontline developments. There's also an ensuing improvement in communications with the Soviet rear. So more and more gradually, more contact is um, established, either through special secret agents who are moving back and forth across the front or through radio transmitters. The main reason for the growth of the partisan movement, though, was German conduct and the extreme brutality with which the Germans sought to combat any resistance, real or imagined. For that, I think it's, it's important to sort of recall that as long as German violence was mostly aimed at Jews or prisoners of war, the partisans were weak, and also rumors about the defeat of the Red Army Rive among the populations 
few among the Slavic civilian population had an incentive to expose themselves to the dangers of partisan life. Life in the forest was extremely harsh, it was very dangerous, it was a constant battle with cold, hunger, and lies, and really only the young and physically fit could hope to be able to survive these extreme conditions, um, especially during the winter. For certain population groups, above all for the elderly and for children, leaving for the forest was never really an option um, because they found it almost impossible to survive under these conditions. What we can see, though, is that once German violence against non-Jewish civilians becomes more frequent and widespread, so once the Germans start with the burning down of villages and destroying entire districts, the composition of the partisan units began to change. In 1942, the, the former Red Army soldiers still constituted the majority of Soviet partisans. But within a year, that has changed. By 1943, most of the Soviet partisans active in Belarus were local residents. We also know that most of them, so most of them were not only pre-war inhabitants of the Republic, but most of them were also Belarusian speakers from the villages. Some of them had left for the forest because they wanted to evade deportation as forced laborers to the Germans. Others joined because they had no family and no livelihood to return to after the village had been razed to the ground. Joining the partisans was also a way to take revenge for the murder of loved ones to take an active part in the liberation of one's home region and country from foreign invaders, um, which again was not necessarily the same as fighting for communism. Some were also drafted by force into the party units, meaning that overall there are many different reasons why individuals joined the partisan movement. Now you asked specifically about female partisans and um, that is so within these this very vulnerable position that partisans were in in the forest, you know, um, often permanently at fear of being detected. Female partisans were in a particularly vulnerable position. They were fewer than men, and they usually needed a protector, so to say. And they usually needed to enter a strategic relationship if it wasn't based, you know, the the relationship based on affection didn't develop then. They um, needed to choose sort of someone with whom they would then officially live with and who would then be able to protect them potentially from the others. This is not sort of something to say that all partisans would have, male partisans would have sort of harassed them necessarily and quite on, you know, on the contrary. It's, it's a structural problem. And um, in order to not be exposed anymore to this vulnerability, they needed, again, to enter the strategic relationship with a ideally powerful male partisan. More generally, on the relationship between partisans and local civilians, you can say that it's not an easy relationship. Um, it, and that also, again, points to a structural problem, which is at the heart of this, this relationship was the fact that the Soviet partisans were armed and civilians were not and that the partisans depended for survival on the food given to them or taken from the local population. Um, so this is when we, when we you know, in, in post-war interviews with um, inhabitants of sort of rural inhabitants or inhabitants of villages, this is something that comes up again and again, that the partisans were coming at night and they were asking for food or um, they were taking food, or in any case, you know, if somebody comes up and shows up with, with a gun and, and in front of your house in the middle of the night, you know, the, it's a very blurry line between asking and sort of taking the food. And so these are usually then also the situations where 
if violence happens, then it happens here. So when partisans were entering village huts looking for food or alcohol. Um, so even if you were sympathetic to the partisans, you identified with their struggle, you would still have these difficult encounters with them. That kind of violence that the partisans um, uh, sometimes commit against civilians is, is nothing compared to the kind that the Germans inflict. The Germans inflict indiscriminate violence. They burn down entire villages and districts. And partisans mostly direct their attacks against local representatives of the Germans, so local policemen, uh, village heads, although they also sometimes employ collective punishment. So then they would not only try to kill um, the um, a local policeman, but also um, perhaps his entire family. And in regions where power was contested between the Germans, as a result of that, we also see more violence against civilians. So in the partisan zones, the relation, so the zones that were entirely quite stably under, under um, partisan control, we see that there is much, much less violence towards civilians. Um, and that's also something interesting that the partisans themselves in their memoirs have analyzed. So again, it was the relationship between partisans and local civilians was... Um, it varied, obviously, from individual case to case, but overall it was one that was um, determined by the structural imbalance, the, the, um, the problem that we have a power hierarchy and the fact that one side is armed and the other is not. Right, so they were basically obliged to provide the partisans with whatever they needed. Okay, I'd like to move on to the immediate post-war period now, uh, specifically the period of rebuilding, which is the focus of Chapter 3. So in this chapter, you examine the rebuilding of the USSR, which you argue entailed not only the clearing of rubble and rebuilding of cities and towns, but also rebuilding society. So what was the nature of this rebuilding process and how did it affect the people of Belarus and how were they themselves involved in this rebuilding process? Yeah, as you were saying, it was um, this sort of reconstruction effort took place at a time when most cities lay in ruins. Um, entire rural districts had been burned down and large parts of the population were uprooted and displaced. So those who survived were not able to settle down soon. Um, in the first post-occupation years until at least 1948, the region really continues to be in motion. So you have hundreds of thousands of demobilized soldiers and partisans, former forced laborers, re-evacuees, refugees who are moving into, out of, within or through the Republic. In that experience of migration, the moment of return, so first and foremost, the much hope for reunion with family members figures very prominently. Some people are overjoyed to find their loved ones alive. For others, it is a moment of deepest grief and devastation, in particular for Holocaust survivors who discovered that nothing of their pre-war worlds had remains. Some in this moment of return are actually very much fearful of the wartime past and try to evade home and settle elsewhere, or they flee west at the Red Army advances. Then others, such as ethnic Poles from Western Belarus, who consider themselves ethnic Poles or are considered such by the Soviet state, had to ask themselves whether returning home and resettling to Poland under the conditions of the um, post-war Polish-Soviet population exchange or staying in, in Belarus. So this immediate in the immediate aftermath, my sense was that the primarily fo primary focus of individuals on the family um, and the incredible amount of trauma um, that each individual carries. And within these dire living conditions, trying to keep on going day by day. Um, it is also 
in some ways you could almost say like what kind of society, right? Because we have a state that is in which the Western half of the Republic had been longer under German rule by 1944 than under prior Soviet rule before the war. And where the political Sovietization of that part, the Western half of the Republic still needs to be carried out after the war. Um, we also have people with very different, uh, who relate very differently to Soviet power. So what, what is, I think, absolutely generalizable, there is a great, great, great relief at seeing the German occupation end. And so the Red Army is in that sense greeted as liberators from German rule. But underneath that, there's much more apprehension about the return of Soviet power as such, about the return of, of Soviet, the Soviet state. And that is linked in the eastern part to the memory of collectivization in the 1930s. And in the western half, it is linked to sort of the thought of the impending collectivization, um, the fear that collectivization of agriculture is going to happen. And so this is the situation in which everything is very much in flux and in which the Soviet authorities are also returning and they are posing then this question of what did you do during the war most openly and um, pursuing it with a lot of determination in this very fluid situation. So... Related to this, you discussed some of the population transfers that occurred um, after the war. And who left Belarus? Why did they go? And why did they stay? To understand how um, the Polish-Belarusian population exchange sort of figures within the larger history of the region, we have to pull back the lens and um, see that this particular population exchange is connected to the 1939 and 1940 territorial annexations of the Soviet Union. And um, it is also a population exchange that is carried out simultaneously with similar population exchanges in between Poland and Lithuania and Poland and Ukraine. So the Soviet authorities return at a time when there is still significant anti-Soviet resistance in, in these regions that they only annexed in 1939 and 1940. So in, in what was formerly Eastern Poland, and then in the Baltic um, states. And while the state security um, forces are fighting against this, the Soviet resistance, which um, they, they are generally able to bring the situation from their point of view um, sooner under control in, in Western Belarus than in Lithuania and in Ukraine, where, where that kind of resistance is much stronger and, and also keeps on going longer. But while they are fighting that, um, the anti-Soviet resistance, they, they also employ population exchange as a, as a matter, measure kind of to um, create a situation on the ground, so to say. Um, and um, meaning the idea is that by transferring select population groups, they would confirm these territorial annexations of 1939 and 1940. So almost... Uh, several months before the Yalta conference officially confirmed these territorial acquisitions. Um, in uh, representatives of the future communist Polish state concluded separate nearly identical population exchange agreement with Lithuania, Belarus, and Ukraine. This took place in early September 1944. And in this way, the Soviet government sent a clear message to the Polish resistance and other nationalists were operating in the Soviet Western regions. And that that message was that most of the pre-1939 Eastern Polish regions, um, and then also um, um, 
the parts that sort of concern Lithuania would continue to be a part of the Soviet Union. And there would be no independent Ukrainian, no independent Belarusian, or no independent Lithuanian state. Under the conditions of this Polish-Belarusian Population Exchange Agreement, again, similar ones are concluded with Ukraine and with Lithuania, those whom the authorities deemed ethnic Belarusians from the Białystok region um, and small parts of the Brest region, which were handed back to Poland in 1945, were to be sent east for, quote-unquote, repatriation to Belarus. And the, those whom the authorities deemed ethnic Poles from Western Belarus and who before 1939 had been citizens of Poland were to be sent west for, quote-unquote, repatriation to Poland. Jews from Western Belarus were permitted to leave as well, but ethnic Belarusians as well as other inhabitants from Western Belarus who were neither Polish nor Jewish were prohibited from leaving, even though they had likewise held Polish citizenship before 1939. In, in, in total, um, by the time that the, when the population transfers concluded in December 1946, about 28,000 people were resettled from the Białystok region to Belarus, and almost 240,000 people were transferred from Belarus to Poland. 2% of them were Jewish and the rest ethnic Poles. What's interesting about this population exchange is that the Soviet leadership was primarily interested in seeing anyone depart for Poland who had belonged to the local Polish elites before 1939. With landowners deported prior to 1941, this meant that those considered undesirable were primarily urban residents, so above all, former Polish state officials and members of the clergy. Some were pressured by the state security organs, but many more needed less direct persuasion. Or like one of the main protagonists in, in the book, Zofia Brzozowska, leaves on, on her own accord. Others wanted to leave, but eventually did not, because they were not allowed to leave by the Soviet authorities. Um, about 305,000 people, so more than half of those who had signed up for resettlement to Poland, had the request denied by the authorities. These were overwhelmingly um, peasants who self-identified as Poles in their application forms, but the authorities then say that they were Polonized Catholic Belarusians who had yet to become aware of their, quote, true ethnicity. The reason for that is that in this sort of war-ravaged republic, their, their manpower was urgently needed. Um, what this also shows is that the aim of this population exchange between Poland and Belarus was not to create an ethnically homogenous Western Belarus. The goal was rather to remove those that were deemed potentially hostile to the Soviet state um, from the Soviet Union, from Soviet Belarus. And then in contrast, though, the authorities were confident that they could exert enough influence on peasants who claimed to be Poles um, and turn them into loyal Soviet residents. Well, this also meant that although we do have pockets of Polish-speaking communities remaining in the Western Belarusian countryside, but the region's urban landscape, which was already radically transformed as a result of the Holocaust, then underwent further changes. So in the case like a, of a town like Grodno, which in the interwar years was a Yiddish and Polish-speaking town, means that as a result of these, these processes, we see it turning into a primarily Belarusian and increasingly also Russian-speaking town. So part of the rebuilding effort also involved cleansing parts of Belarus of collaborators and uh, in Soviet parlance, individuals who had been servants of the Germans. So could you talk a little bit about how this search for servants of the Germans was carried out? 
according to what wartime acts were Soviet citizens identified and then tried and found guilty. Um, maybe you can also discuss some of the problems associated with the Soviet penal code, because as you note, it was quite vague. And then maybe discuss some of the punishments they received. So this was really a question of utmost importance for the Soviet authorities. And, and by that, I mean, the people who are involved in this process are party leaders, they're state security officers, and they are then members of the judiciary and the procurers and the prosecutors. And the, why that is so important is because it is inextricably linked to the reestablishment of Soviet power, finding out what people in occupied territory had done. If we look comparatively and we can see that no country that was occupied during the Second World War prosecuted as many of its own nationals for what they had done under foreign rule as the Soviet Union. Although China might perhaps be an exception, but we have no numbers um, on that. The majority of Soviet citizens who are accused of having uh, collaborated with the Germans um, were charged with treason and they're convicted in secret in quick trials that lacked fundamental standards of rule of law-based legal systems, such as an independent judiciary, independent defense attorneys, and the assumption of innocent unto proven guilty that would form the precondition for any trial to be considered as impartial as possible. The general course was always set by the leading Bolsheviks in Moscow, um, and as such was to be applied uniformly across the Soviet Western regions. In general, we can say that the Soviet punishment of suspected wartime traitors was swift, it was harsh, and it was also sweeping. At the same time, punitive practices were not static, but they varied over time. So between in the, uh, throughout the post-war years, the, this, this sort of punitive practices vary or alternate between more lenient and stricter, and then less active and more expensive phases. The prosecution of Soviet citizens um, accused of wartime treason starts very early on in late 1941, when the, when the Red Army in its first counteroffensive regains territories in Western Russia. Punishment is particularly strict in this early reconquest phase and the death sentence is really common. Um, but soon the Politburo in Moscow then grows alarmed by military tribunal reports that stressed the improper qualification of crimes and they try to clarify the legal basis of punishment. So throughout 1943, several political and judicial bodies in Moscow then issue a series of instructions that introduced a legal distinction between traitors on the one hand and accomplices on the other hand. And they specify the corresponding acts and then also set different sentences ranging from imprisonment to the death penalty. A real turning point in the state's politics of retribution occurred during the first half of 1944, though. So this is the, the time when, by the late spring, the Red Army had pushed the German army from Western Russia, from Eastern and Central Ukraine, including Kiev, and also from parts of Eastern Belarus around Goma. What we can see in reports by Soviet military tribunals is that a noticeable change took place in these first months of 1944. Um, that means that overall punishment became less strict and the death penalty was much less common than one might have expected, according to these 1943 instructions. And the ratio of death penalty to prison sentence then also drops further in the next two years. That's something that um, happens in Belarus, but it also happens or was, has also been observed for Ukraine for the time period 43 to 45. This moderation of punitive practices shouldn't be mistaken for an increase in due process of law. 
Rather, it was brought about by shifting political circumstances, which led to a recalibration of state priorities. So as the Red Army was reconquering more and more territory from the Germans, we see that retribution evolved into a process in which different objectives and aims and interests had to be weighed against each other. So on the one hand, there's reclaiming authority by way of punishment, yet also, on the other hand, portraying the Soviet state as liberator, guarantor of justice, and facing a shortage of experienced personnel on all levels of the Soviet party state. After Stalin's death, then, another change takes place. So there are limited de-Stalinization efforts and the state that moderates its punitive policies. In 1955, it issues a partial amnesty. In the 1960s, then, domestic and international changes, um, including the Eichmann trial in 1961 in Israel, spurs a second wave of public trials. And the prosecution, then, of Soviet citizens um, continues until the late 1980s. Interesting, though, this, this balancing acts, or perhaps you could also say, perhaps not surprisingly, as, as it is the case with, with all sorts of balancing acts, was not free of tensions and contradictions. The Soviet leaders are, are very much determined to punish local participation in German atrocity. So to punish, for example, local policemen who had participated in the Holocaust. And they do also prosecute and sentence many of them. At the same time, the search for those deemed traitors was also about defining political loyalty. That means that although we see this relative moderation of punishment um, take place, um, or beginning in 1944, the Soviet leadership then continues to regard the war as a test that revealed people's true loyalties. So in that sense, they showed no understanding for the moral gray zones of occupation. In their rulings, the military tribunals did not take external pressures constrained or intent as mitigating factors into account. They also dismissed any recourse to pragmatism, so along the lines of, I had to do this, I was under pressure. Um, they dismissed those as um, and said, this is not a justifiable reason for, for why people acted the way they did. Interestingly, though, the authorities are willing to accommodate their own pragmatic wartime choices. And they also did not hold everyone accused of treason accountable by the same standard. By that I mean that um, during the war, Moscow actively encouraged Soviet citizens who served in the German organized police forces to join the Soviet partisans. This was a, a deliberate policy, which was promoted by none other than Pantelaiman Panamarenka, who was the first secretary of the Communist Party of Belarus and also the head of the Soviet partisan movement. And this policy was also approved by Stalin quote-unquote, traitors turned partisans, were then later also the only group in whose cases Soviet military courts systematically took mitigating circumstances into account. So meaning that their sentences would be lowered significantly. These sort of contradictory practices resulted from tensions between ideological imperatives and pragmatic concerns, but they also resulted from tensions within ideology. By these tensions within ideology, I mean that on the one hand, the state maintained that the civilian population occupied territory had fully supported the Soviet partisans. On the other hand, when Panamarenko and other high-ranking Bolsheviks returned, they um, very much believed that the war had helped uncover mass enemies in hiding. So people who had supposedly gone into hiding in the interwar years and then had resurfaced and joined the Germans in 1941. These sort of tensions within ideology, within sort of perception, also mean that the, um, the, the authorities in Belarus, as elsewhere, are unable, in, as elsewhere throughout the Soviet Western regions, are really unable to establish a consensus on just what exactly 
working for the Germans, as they put it in internal state documents, had entailed. The case of policemen in village had seemed relatively easy to judge, but there was a lot more confusion um, with regard to teachers, agricultural specialists, office clerks who had worked in a, in a German overseen administration. There was said the dialect of cadres, so the Soviet state continues to employ many of them, but the suspicion towards them, um, which we see reflected in the denial of higher education or professional advancement, really didn't diminish over the years. So anyone who had lived under Nazi rule could be suspect. When Soviet citizens, um, Soviet citizens had to fill out a, a bibliographical questionnaire before they began a new job or became, um, entered university, and on this bibliographical questionnaire, there was one line that said, did you live in occupied territory, um, which expresses this, this uh, sort of universal kind of suspicion towards them. And so in some ways, we can say that the, the state that emerges from the Second World War, the Soviet state, was able to quickly reassert its authority in the formerly German-occupied territories, but at the same time remains somewhat ambivalent about its politics of um, retribution. I was going to do a follow-up question on that, because just like with Nazi collaboration and occupation policies, uh, there was reliance on ordinary people for this process. So in what ways were ordinary individuals involved in identifying those who had worked or collaborated with the Germans? The Soviet authorities, when they returned, very much depend on local information. So they depend very much on on things that are being passed on to them. And they also very much actively look for that. So they draw on captured German wartime documents. Um, they turn to the partisan units for information because they are the ones who know the region. They are the ones who know sort of local conditions. Um, they also use the um, police surveillance records to kind of to identify individuals. Um, but they also can depend on, on the help of some who turn to them. And this is a, um, a complex history, so to say, because this includes people who, um, for example, Holocaust survivors, who very much want to see those held accountable who um, they think were guilty or, or have participated in the murder of their families. Um, and so that can happen in different ways. People um, wrote letters to the authorities and, and um, told them, uh, about the wartime activities of others. Sometimes they were specifically approached by um, state security officers and asked if um, they could provide names. Sometimes they're interrogated. I mean, sometimes they're witnesses um, as part of the um, Che Guevara, um, the Extraordinary State Commission, the protocols. But sometimes they would also be interrogated as suspects and so then also provide names. So it's, we see a whole range of different people who have their own personal motivation to approach the Soviet authorities and um, to provide information in the hope that then that, that will help to bring uh, individuals to justice who um, they, they deem have committed crimes in the name of German power during the war. So I'd like to move on to some of the people who returned to Belarus after the war. And in Chapter 5, you begin with the return of Litman Moore to southwestern Belarus. He had been in Lithuania, and he returns in the fall of 1944. And what did he encounter upon his return? And you know, to what degree would this have been something that was commonly experienced? Litman Moore is, um, he survives the war as a partisan. So he 
is from this small town in uh, David Garadok in southwestern Belarus. And then um, by the time of um, the, when the Soviet, um, Soviets annexed North Estonian Poland, by the time he's already in Vilnius, he's a chemistry student there. So by the time when he returns to um, David Garadok, to his hometown in Polizia, he hasn't seen his family for more than five years. He has a sense of what might have happened to them. Um, he fled from the Vilnius ghetto to the Jewish, uh, sorry, to the Belarusian um, Lithuanian borderlands, and as said, fights then with a partisan um, unit there. So he has a sense of what might await him, but um, in his memoirs he explains how he explicitly wanted to know. He wanted to see with his own eyes what had happened. He manages to make his way to um, David Garadok in the fall of 1944, so right after the end of Nazi occupation, and returns to a, to a town which is essentially empty of its Jewish community. Um, and he reflects upon this in his memoirs very powerfully when he says it was really only the moment when he enters his family's house, um, his family owned a, a textile um, store, and he enters these buildings and there isn't even a, a single piece of furniture left that the catastrophe and the loss really sort of become you know, visible to him. Um, and it's, it's sort of this utterly traumatic moment of seeing the emptiness of the space and realizing that no one has has survived. But it, so this is something that's very in, in, in memoirs by Holocaust survivors um, is often described in very similar terms, um, the confrontation with the past and then and um, that moment of utter shock and catastrophe, although anticipated in some ways. Um, but what is Perhaps it's not unique about him, but it's in some ways unique the way in which he describes in a memoir is that he's then determined to find out what had happened in the town. And he starts to approach neighbors. So he starts to wander through the town and look for people that he knows and um, eventually meets some of them who, and they are very reluctant to talk. Um, he persists though and then slowly, you know, sort of step by step information comes to light. And um that information that he receives then also makes him, um, well, essentially poses for him this, this question sort of then also begins to arise, like to what extent did neighbors take property? Um, uh, did, did they take furniture from my my, um, my family's apartment? Who was a local policeman? David Garadok is, is in so far one of the most extreme cases perhaps of, of anti um, or of local participation in the Holocaust that we know from Belarus. So it's also a very intense place to return to. Um, and one in which he also encounters a lot of, as I said, unwilling, um, not a lot of willingness to talk, a lot of reluctance, also hostility. It is also a part in in because it's boarding it's in Polizhian, it's boarding Ukraine where some Ukrainian nationalist units are still active. So it's a dangerous place for Jewish survivors. Um, and they their their this sort of sense of utter loss plus this question of the, you know the ghost of war pertaining to his neighbors and what they might have done. Plus, at the same time, this feeling of I will never return here really manifests itself in this moment of return, in his individual personal moment of return. One of the threads in this chapter is the relationship between wartime behavior and post-war belonging and when people did return, how 
they were able to kind of reframe or reshape their wartime experiences in such a way that then they could feel they could be a part of that place again. Because of course, as you just discussed, they returned to empty homes, having been completely looted, their family having been murdered, and their sense of place no longer existed, essentially. Their home was gone. They didn't feel a sense mm-hmm. of home. So how did how did people adapt to this if they did choose to stay? So how did they reframe those wartime experiences and then also their relationship to the community so they could at least manage to live in these places? Mm-hmm. I think the the question of um, are you the sole survivor or almost sole survivor of your family versus do you have family to return to really played a big role in this. So if we compare, for example, the ex- experience of Lippmann Moore with that of Vasil Bukow, we see that Bukow is, a, is aware of, um, in his later writings, showed this in his memoirs, very much of these moral gray zones of occupation, even though he himself did not experience the occupation in Belarus, but he was um, fighting in, with the Red Army, he was at the front. But he is, again, like very much aware of the, um, the very complex nature of, of local relations under Nazi occupation, of, of the pressures constrained of that. And that's something that becomes then a topic in his later writings. But in contrast to, to Liebmann Moore, when he returns finally to his, his home village in northeastern Belarus, he returns, his, his parents survived the war, his, his sort of closest family survived the war, and he doesn't have or this is what I surmised from, surmised from his memoirs, he doesn't have that personal motivation to, to continue to ask neighbors or continue to ask close ones about what they personally might have done during the war, which is in contrast to someone like a, like a Holocaust survivor for Liebmann Moore, or Chasia Bronstein-Belitzka, who are the sole survivors of their, um, their large families. And their, their strategies are often to leave um, because it's unbearable. Many of the Holocaust survivors from Western Belarus um, then leave the Soviet Union. Um, uh, most of them either um, try to get to Palestine via Poland or also via Poland to eventually the United States. That pertains, though, only to those who are eligible for this um, population exchange. So Holocaust survivors from Eastern Belarus um, were not in that position that they could apply to leave the Soviet Union. And they often they see sort of a mix of strategies. Like there's the focus on the family. Um, some also choose not to approach neighbors, um, make a deliberate choice not to sort of question them further. Uh, others, especially those from smaller towns where the destruction is of a different nature. I mean, Minsk is also obviously um, is, is vastly destroyed and the Jew- Jewish community is murdered, but it's a larger town, and so there, there are other kinds of dynamics happening after the war. But especially these former shtetls in, in what were shtetls at the turn of the century in eastern Belarus, those who return there often also try to leave for, for bigger towns, uh, for larger towns. Then there's also post-war migration. Um, in some ways, again, it's a strategy to escape um, or not to escape, to continue on living, to leave a place. But for some, they don't necessarily have a choice. So Lev Avsitcher, for example, is in the Red Army, then he's sort of being transferred to a different place. So so a lot of the post-war movement then also necessarily doesn't necessarily happen because people, you know, decide on their own account to do so, but but because the Soviet state sends them somewhere. And so their trage- trajectories in that sense 
differ from from those who make that conscious choice of I can no longer stay in this place and I have to leave and I will seek out the opportunities that I have um, to leave. Let's move on to chapter six now, which uh, examines how the Nazi occupation and the war was represented in uh, official Soviet media during the Cold War. And so can you talk a little bit about the official narrative of the war, you know, who was left out of the story or marginalized, and how did this narrative change over the course of Soviet rule? Um, within the larger Soviet narrative of the wars and all people's war, Belarus soon came to occupy a special place as the republic where the all people's partisan war, the Vsyanarodnaya Partizanska Vajna, had taken place. According to this narrative, the Soviet partisan war against the Germans was made possible through the undivided support of the local population. So in other words, Moscow and Minsk maintained that, with the exception of a few deemed traitors, people had stood firmly behind Soviet power. What this also meant is that by narrating the years of war and occupation, the authorities created a new linear story of Soviet Belarusian statehood. One that firmly united Eastern Belarus, which had been Soviet for two decades prior to the war, and then Western Belarus, which had only been annexed from Poland in 1939, under this banner of the Partisan Republic. Constructing and upholding that image of Belarus as the, the place where the all-people's partisan war had been fought produced its own set of um, omissions and distortions. As acts of public remembrance um, contributed to public silencing and forgetting, party leaders increasingly omitted Jewish and Polish inhabitants of Belarus from the official war memory as resistors, but also as victims. Um, we can see here sort of the mechanisms of inclusion and exclusion that were underlying this post-war memory-making process. We also see that female partisans um, are marginalized um, increasingly in that narrative of the, the all-people's partisan warfare. They uh, constituted a significant part of the partisan movement, but after the war, um, it very much becomes a narrative sort of, of a um, kind of male achievement with female participation at best at the side. And of course, I've mentioned earlier this, this complicated relationship between civilians and the partisans, so meant that even many ethnic Belarusians didn't find that their actual wartime experience were reflected in the state's narrative, because it left no space to acknowledge that the relationship between Soviet partisans and civilians in occupied territory had been often fragile, unequal, and fraught with conflict. In interviews that researchers in Belarus did um, after the fall of the Soviet Union, um, when they did interviews in Belarusian villages, they, they found an interesting kind of um, way in which I think individuals try to make sense of this discrepancy between official and private memory. Um, and both in Western and in Belarus, um, researchers have found that residents sort of dis or individuals distinguished between what they called real partisans, who could then also be honored for their for their sacrifices and for their for their resistance activity, and um, what they called bandits. So and bandits were then described as those people who came and you know um, committed violence or took against um, or took um, food by force, whereas the real partisans in that kind of um, memory did not. And so that introducing that distinction between real partisans and bandits in local memory, I think we can read that as an attempt to rationalize the views that some people had encountered from some partisans. Um, but in the post-war Soviet Union, 
such a reframing of people's wartime experience could publicly only be articulated at the cost of exclusion from the larger political community. So even that kind of personal reframing, this, this dichotomy between real partisans and bandits was publicly not possible. What's also interesting about the partisan republic narrative was that it was mostly advanced by a small group of leading Bolsheviks in Belarus. So these were high-ranking party members like Pantelaiman Panamarenka, Lafrenti Tsanava, Piotr Kalinin, who styled themselves as former partisans and who had also helped direct the movement from the rear in, in very sort of high positions. But they had no personal experience of what it meant to be living and fighting in the forest during the war. All the while, in the immediate post-war years, these men were removing many rank-and-file partisans who had actually fought in the forest from local positions of power, from the lower levels of the Soviet party state apparatus. So to sum up, perhaps, there were many discrepancies that existed between official commemoration on the one hand and private memories of the war between post-war representation and actual wartime experiences. What's interesting, too, to see is that the, the official war memory develops over time. And it could, within limits, obviously, also be contested. Um, and this is something that can be very well seen through the lobbying efforts by surviving members of the 1941-1942 Minsk Undergrounds, which was an early resistance organization. Um, and that kind of shows how it was at once possible to challenge part of the official narrative while also striving to be included in it. The thing about this early resistance organization, the... 41-42 Minsk underground was that it was not guided by Moscow, so it didn't operate under its command. Some of the underground's members were members of the Communist Party and, and others were not, and they began to organize and conduct resistance activity early on into the war. There are different kind of units throughout Minsk. One is located in the ghetto, and then others are located in other parts of the towns, and they are connected and, and they are in contact with each other. The problem was that um, for the authorities that this early underground began to organize and conduct resistance activities on their own initiative. And so its existence was an embarrassment to the political leaders of Belarus who had fled Minsk on June 25th, a few days before the German army arrived in Minsk, which is then why already during the war and after the war, leaders of Belarus, for example, Pantamailam Panamarenko, denied that this 41-42 Minsk underground had been actual resistance organization. And instead, they called it the work of quote-unquote traitors. Former members of this underground, though, continue to contest this narrative. And so they, they write letters um, to the authorities, and, and which is quite risky to do um, in the immediate post-war years. But the efforts eventually are successful. And we can see that after two decades, this resistance organization went from being deemed the work of provocatives and, and traitors to sort of an, uh, uh, um, a laudable achievement of Soviet patriots. This radical reinterpretation that that became possible had also largely to do with power shifts in the Politburo in Moscow following the death of Stalin. Um, and there were personal rivalries between Khrushchev and Panamarenka and um, the former members of the underground turned specifically to Khrushchev to sort of point out that his rival Panamarenko was, um, was uh, not acknowledging sort of their existence. Um, and, and Khrushchev then picks that up. It's also possible because the larger Soviet nar narrative, war narrative, becomes more personal, more inclusive beginning in the late 1950s. But all of this sort of this reinterpretation couldn't, ha couldn't have happened had these um, members of the underground not sent complaint letters and petitions to the Republican central authorities. So we can see here that 
investing in the war narrative, in the official war narrative, did not necessarily preclude diverging opinions. And within certain limits, people in the Soviet Union were able to test the boundaries of the official war narrative to see whether these boundaries could be stretched or altered. I mean, what's striking here is their bravery, but also that the authorities actually paid attention to these letters, because often those were just, you know, discarded, not taken into consideration, but that then this became a narrative. And of course, as you note, it's about larger power shifts and as a source of legitimacy for Khrushchev in opposition to Stalinist interpretations and representations of the war, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much so. So... My penultimate question is about the protagonists uh, in your story and what happens to them just briefly after the war. You mentioned a few of them already, or two of them, what happened to them. Yeah, they have very different um, trajectories. I touched on this briefly when I talked about the moment of turn and then this decision to to leave the Soviet Union or not, how that was also very much tied to to the perception of what um, one's former neighbors might have done during the war. Again, like the the focus on on the family, I think is something that all of them share. the The sense of wanting to find meaning again in life after um, this, you know, utter catastrophe and loss. Chasya Bronstein Bilitska, for example, was the sole survivor of the family. Then um, um, becomes an educator. She accompanies Jewish orphans from Poland to Palestine, and so this this gives her a renewed sense of of purpose. Um, Vasubuko turns to writing eventually, um, in which he he reflects very much on on the again within the limits of what was possible to 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 be said in the Soviet Union on these pressures and constraints under under German occupation. Others find meaning. Um, Vladimir Khartanovich finds meaning in in identifying with the Soviet state. He becomes an active um, organizer of the collectivization of his his village in in Western Belarus. Um, so they remain the very different people that they were before the war. And some are personally, I mean, the, the Second World War touches all of their lives. Like no one in this region remains untouched. But but there are, again, differences to the extent to which they have lost family members. Um, Zofia Brzozowska, um, interestingly, for example, has lost more family members to the Soviet authorities or to Soviet power than to the Germans. And so her... Um, her history or her, her memory of the war um, is also slightly different than that of others because of this very personal experience um, or different personal experience. So again, they remain these different individuals with different trajectories, but um, we can definitely say is that the, the Second World War for them never becomes history, and, and how could it have, you know? Um, but it remains ever-present, and it is something that they then, um, I think, they use or writing as a way to reflect um, on on these experiences and also to pass on their memories to to subsequent generations. Right, and then how the war serves as a basis, their memories of the war, their their continued relationship with the war, the fact that those ghosts of war continue to be present in their lives also is a source of resilience, uh, as you demonstrate, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, we've come to the end of the interview, so it was really wonderful speaking with you. I'm incredibly impressed with your book. It was a very moving read, but also very theoretically sophisticated, and I look forward to signing it in a few of my classes, actually. I teach a class on history and memory, but also in my graduate seminar on European history. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me. And so my final question is, what are you currently working on? 
I have shifted to the 19th century. Um, I'm now working on a project about the border between Imperial Russia, um, Austria, and then first Prussia and later, later Germany. So this border that existed from 1815 to the end of the First World War, which cut mostly through Polish-speaking, but also Yiddish, German, Ukrainian, Lithuanian regions, depending on, on where we are along this border. Um, it was perhaps one of the most well-guarded borders by 19th century standards in Europe. And I would like to find out how cross-border cooperation between these empires, but also conflict, shaped the development of modern border regimes along, on, along this border um, through East Central Europe, but also the, ex the experience of living close to it and crossing it in, in several ways. So I'm trying to combine again the macro with the micro um, level in my analysis. So we'll see where that takes me. It sounds fantastic. We need a lot more um, studies of everyday experiences of border change, transitions, um, migration, and especially in uh, the region of Eastern and Central Europe. So look forward to reading the publications that come out of this research. Thank you very much. And thank you so much for this, this uh, very interesting discussion today. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much.